someone says bad things about you, it's not easy for you to bless them, to elevate them, to lift them up, to speak well of them. But nevertheless, this is what God calls us to do. Not only to bless them, but not to curse them. Not to return it on them. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 18 this morning. And today's sermon is called Room for Wrath. Room for Wrath. So if you follow along on the screen or in your Bible, it says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I know if you all remember this day, it really wasn't all that long ago. October 2nd, 2006, it's burned in the minds of a lot of America, and for a good reason. That Monday morning, it was beautiful and it was clear in the Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. A non-Amish man backed his pickup truck into the schoolyard of the West Nickel Mines Amish School. Inside the one-room schoolhouse are 28 students, three adult women, the teacher, and three visitors that day. The intruder, Charles Roberts, was a milk truck driver, well-known in the area. This morning, however, he was heavily armed and ordered everyone in the school to lie on the floor. The teacher and one other adult dashed for the door and escaped for help. Apparently startled that his plans had apparently gone awry, Roberts ordered the remaining adults and boys out of the school. He nailed the door shut, pulled back the blinds to darken the room, tied together the legs of the remaining ten girls who were lying on the floor in the front of the room, and he executed each one of them. By the time police had begun arriving to the school, responding to a phone call by a distraught teacher, after running a half a mile to a neighboring farmhouse, they realized the police had arrived and were asking him through a bullhorn to surrender. Roberts himself called 911, telling the responder that he would execute everyone if the police did not leave. Moments later, the rampage killed five girls and severely injured the other five. After firing a shot through the window the police, at the police, excuse me, He ended his own life. This world is broken. Things like this should never happen. And what we tend to do is we want to pick out things to blame. Some people wanted to blame the police because they didn't negotiate well enough. Some people wanted to to blame the fact that this man could get a hold of a gun. Christians know that this is not the case. Tragedies like this should never happen, but they do. 
And we have commands like the passage we just read to submit to. And it's contrary to worldly thinking. The mistake that we make is we believe that Christians are called to passivity. The Bible calls us to be a light in the darkness, a city on a hill. Amen? And our response to persecution is not to be a cleaned-up version of the world. What we're talking about here is how people set values on other people. Persecution is and has always been devaluing of another person. And what's the typical response for people outside of Christ? It's hit for hit, punch for punch, threat for threat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And people will use this biblical command and do all the time of the Old Testament as a defense for their actions. Just as much as some people use the command of the New Testament as justification to do nothing. But the typical response goes like this. You got me, so now I'm going to get you. Or the opposite. You got me, but I will do nothing. Y'all know what this proves? When we think this way, what this proves is that we don't understand our Bibles. We don't. Without a biblical worldview, we as the church will continue to live like a cleaned up version of the world. And that is not a light on the hill. That is not a light in the darkness. That is not a city on a hill. We are not to be a cleaned up version of the world. So, we need to understand our Bible. So we're going to ask a couple questions this morning to help us understand just a little bit better. This is what we want to do. We want to have a good understanding of what the Scripture says and what the Scriptures call us to do. Amen? So when we look at situations like this, situations where we're called to do and say particular things, we want to know how God wants us to respond. So let's look at just a few questions this morning. Number one, I want you all to answer loudly. Does God contradict himself? All God's people said? I want everybody to be really emphatic about this. Does God contradict himself? All God's people said? No, absolutely not. Does the Bible contradict itself? All God's people said? Does Jesus contradict the biblical commands of the Old Testament? All God's people said, no. No. So now we all should be asking a question. Because the Bible says, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is what the scriptures say. And then the question that we need to ask is, then does Jesus then contradict this verse in the New Testament? Well, what does he say? Notice the words here. I want everyone to pay really, really close attention. He starts off by saying, read those first five words with me. You have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Question here, big question. Did God change his mind? In the Old Testament, somehow, some way, was God saying something different than he's saying in the New Testament? 
Did God have different expectations of the Jews in the Old and New Testaments? All God's people said emphatically, no, absolutely not. Well, we have a problem. We have a problem because we hear two different things. It seems as though God is saying two different things. It seems like in the Old Testament, he's saying, make sure you hit the people back. And in the New Testament, he's saying, don't hit them back. But this issue is not a biblical contradiction. It's just a misunderstanding on our parts. We need to understand what is being said here and why. So, question, does eye for an eye still apply? Well, actually, it does. I'm going to answer that one. It does. Why is that? Why do we say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth still applies? Well, question. Does God care about justice and equity? Does God care about justice and equity, everyone? Yes, absolutely. Are there any New Testament passages where God all of a sudden says, do not seek to do justice? No, there's not. All of a sudden, does God say he does not care about what's equitable and he does not care about justice? No. The cross was a perfect example of justice. A perfect example of equity. Now we are brought into a covenant relationship with God that we did not have before. Well, then what's happening here? Because this seems so confusing to me. Why is it God says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and then in the New Testament, we hear him say, as he's sitting and teaching all of those people at his feet, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What in the world is going on? I want everyone to notice something very particular about what Jesus does say and what he doesn't say here. Jesus does not say here, it is written. How does he preface what he says? You have heard that it was said. You know, what's really interesting is when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament in the book of Matthew, he always says, it is written. Remember his his conversation with the devil as the devil was tempting him after he was um, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. But he answered, say it with me, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice in Matthew 21, 13, he said to them, it is written. My house should be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You know, something really interesting about this phrase is it occurs nine times in the book of Matthew. It is written. It is written. And you know what Christ does every single time he says it is written? He quotes the Old Testament. Every single time. Well, he's obviously quoting something here. Isn't he quoting the Old Testament when he says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Yes and no. He is quoting the Old Testament, but when he's saying, you have heard that it was said, who is speaking to the Jews in Christ's time? Every time they want to hear the word of God, who are they going to listen to? The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? 
The most prominent of all the teachers actually was the scribes. They had to be. You could go to, to any synagogue and hear a scribe teach. They had to know the scriptures very well. It was their job to do what? To write it down. To be scribes. To write down on, on these long scrolls of paper everything that God's word said. And they had to be accurate. They had to be accurate. In some sects, their lives would be on the line if they weren't. Their entire career would be on the line if they weren't. It's very, very important. They had to have accuracy. So though they quoted the Old Testament, they did not understand what they taught. So what happens in the church today, we do this all the time. We toss out verses that are out of context and we don't understand what we're saying. The Bible says this, so I'm going to say that. You know what the number one quoted verse is in the New Testament? What everyone says, doesn't matter what political party you're from, doesn't matter what denomination you're from, you know the number one quoted verse? Judge not, lest you be judged. And I have heard that quoted, as you have, many, many times. And almost every time it has been taken so far out of context, it means what God does not mean. It means what God does not mean. So, though they took it out of context, when Jesus says, you have heard, he is drawing on what the religious leaders had taught them. But, big important break here, when Jesus says, you have heard, it said, you shall not commit adultery, and then says, but I say, what's he doing there? I want to ask everyone a question. Does that mean in the Old Testament that God did not mean that your thoughts also would be brought under scrutiny when it says, I know the thoughts of man? When God says he knows our innermost hearts, you think he does not know when a man or woman was lusting? No, he absolutely did. So is it all of a sudden that Jesus brought out this this brand new version of God? No. The Jews of his day had taken the Bible out of context and they had taught things that simply were not true. They had softened the message. Would everyone just agree with me this morning that when Christ is sitting on the Sermon on the Mount, he is not correcting what God said once before? Would you give me an amen and just agree with me on that this morning? He's not correcting what God said. God did not say something wrong, and Jesus did not bring in this whole new set of commands, all of a sudden saying, well, we made a mistake here. There are people that teach that, uh, that uh, when Jesus corrects different thoughts in the Sermon on the Mount, what he is actually doing is correcting what God once said. Well, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but now I say to you, and this is wrong thinking, this is believing that the unchanging God has all of a sudden, somehow, some way, changed his mind. He doesn't do that. He's not correcting the Bible. He's correcting the misunderstanding of it. And we don't like that. Because when we've heard something taught to us for our entire lives or our entire Christian life, we want to stand on that. And when someone shows us the error and wants to lead us to truth... And we look at it and we study the scriptures and we say, yes, I I was wrong in that area. We don't necessarily like that. We misunderstood. 
But the Bible is self-correcting. It always corrects our faith. Every single time we depend entirely on the Bible, we will be corrected on what we believe, and it's important that we always submit ourselves to that. Jesus Christ is not on the Sermon on the Mount saying that God was wrong and saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's also not saying that eye for eye, tooth for tooth does no longer exist. Eye for eye, tooth to tooth is about justice and equity. So what does Jesus do then to that particular situation? Jesus comes and he brings, what's that word? Clarity. Clarity. You think of the man who for so long had foggy, cloudy vision and all of a sudden he popped on a pair of glasses for the first time and everything is clear. That's what Jesus comes to do. He takes our misunderstandings, sets them aside and shows us the truth. So, how... Does this eye for eye still apply? How's it happen? Well, the same way it was always intended to. Just for a moment, just want to mention this. In the Bible, the most just system of all systems, because it's the perfect word of God, if something is stolen from you, that must be replaced with interest. So the person that stole it to you, stole it from you, excuse me, does not spend six to ten years behind bars getting meals that you're paying for on your dime to get out and do it again. That's not the way it works in the Bible. We did not lock people in cages. In the Bible, if you steal something, you have to pay it back. If you cannot afford to pay it back, then you live in a jail cell. Then you go to prison. And when you're in prison, you do not sit there and watch television and eat corn chips. And I'm not trying to soften anyone's, anyone's experience that's been to prison. But I am saying that in the Bible, the most just and equitable system, the most just and equitable law of all laws that have ever been written, when you go into prison, you will work off that debt. There will be justice. There will be equity. And in the kingdom of God, there will be justice and equity brought to every single situation. Mark my words. There will be no stone left unturned. There will be no injustice. God will make everything right. Read the book of Revelation. It's true. In the Old Testament, if you murder someone, you lose your life. Why? Because you took something that cannot be replaced. So if I take something that can be replaced, I replace it one way or another, even if it costs me 20 years of my life to work off in the debtor's prison to pay it back. Even if I have to become that person's slave for a short amount of time in order to pay off my debt, I will make restitution. If I do something of which I cannot take back, if a man violates a woman, he loses his life in the Old Testament. He loses his life. He does not get to go to jail and then come out and be on some list. He dies. That's justice. That's what the Bible calls justice. And it's not by our hands. It's not by the hand of the offended. So considering that for just a second, when it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, when God says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that did not go away in the New Testament. The understanding that since you hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you, that's different. That's different. The scribes are teaching something different than what God had said. So 
the same way it was intended to, to receive justice and equity at the end of the day so all things are made right. This is the same way we are to understand it today. And this should be the way that our government operates because it's the command that's been given to them to bring justice. Romans 12, 14 through 18, the passage we're dealing with, says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is a difficult command. And typically what we always think is somehow, some way, if we just think about it hard enough, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's just going to make us do this. I have news for you. The Holy Spirit never forces anyone to do anything. He will give you all of the strength you need to do what God has called you to do, but he will never force you to do it. Same thing goes true for those who believe that if God were truly God, if God were truly loving, God would just save everyone. God will not force anyone to love him. Anyone. If you are here this morning and you love God, that is your free choice that you have made. You have made a decision to place your affection upon God to embrace Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God did foreordain these events. God did foreordain your path. But we cannot toss out human responsibility every single time we start talking about sovereignty because God, in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, gives us the ability to make choices. So, some of the choices we have to make that are in front of us is blessing those who persecute you. Raise your hand if this is easy for you. Yeah, me neither. It's not. Someone says bad things about you, it's not easy for you to bless them, to elevate them, to lift them up, to speak well of them. But nevertheless, this is what God calls us to do. Not only to bless them, but not to curse them. Not to return it on them. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice. Often this is a difficult command in the Old, Te- or Old Testament, New Testament, in the Bible. It is difficult for us because we don't always feel like rejoicing. Nevertheless, this is a conscious choice God tells us to make as Christians in the power of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Do not be proud. Do not be boastful. Do not be lifted up, but associate with the lowly. You see, there was some weird thinking in the Old Testament where somehow you always had to be seated with the best of people. And it was in the New Testament too. You always had to be seated with those that had the best repute. Who did Jesus sit with? Prostitutes and sinners. Tax collectors. People that were hated. Calls us to do the same. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. I want someone to notice something here. For some people that believe that the Holy Spirit's just going to take a holy and just all of a sudden you're going to start doing things you don't understand. It's not true. Those two words in the beginning of verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In the Bible, there are many accounts where people were not able to live peaceably with certain people. And what did they do? They separated their relationships. They moved away. In order to be peaceable, they had to have distance. Understand, there are some people in this world that you are going to have to distance yourself from, and that's just a matter of fact. That's just what God says has to be done. And as difficult as it is, that sometimes has to be done. If possible, as far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all, but if you cannot do this, you need to go. You've got to move. 
Notice it goes on to say, as a contradiction, it seems as us, for eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it does seem like a contradiction, but it's not. It's not at all. Why do I say it's not at all? Because this is the way that you and I were called to live. To lay ourselves aside, to lay our own seeking for justice aside, to lay our own desire to see people get what they deserve aside. That's what we're called to do. What I want to notice that this passage echoes the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice in Matthew 5.39 it says this, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What's it say? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. I like action movies. Y'all like action movies? Give me an amen. Action movies are awesome. Love the movies where the guy finally becomes a vigilante and goes out there to bring justice. But it's unbiblical. That's not what God calls us to do. God does say that justice should come to every situation, and it should. But God has, has instituted certain governments for this. The government that we live under is first the Bible and second the rule of self-government. That We need to take care and protect ourselves, protect our families. We need to protect our church body. We need to protect those locally around us. We need to care for ourselves and make sure we're doing the right thing. And everyone else in our sphere of influence, we are to be a help to them. There will be justice. There will be. We are never to avenge ourselves. We're never to take it in our own hands to turn and fire back. Now, I just want to make, um, make this clear. There are several instances when this uh, does, does not apply. So you may be saying, well, you're picking and choosing from God's word. I'm not, and I can show you the verses. So um, first is this. If there is a war and you're in the military... All bets are off. You are there to save your life. I want everyone to understand this. Those people that are out there this morning in battle are not going against God's word. God's word never says that they are to lay down and to die. They are out there defending our freedoms, and they are to continue to do that. Another instance when, uh, when all bets are off is someone enters your home in the middle of the night. The Bible says you have the right to protect yourself and your family. That's found in Exodus. If they come in in the middle of the night in the dark to harm you, you have the biblical right, and most states continue to carry that right, to protect yourself and your family. Now, if it's daylight, that's a different scenario. We know the Bible says if it's daylight, that means you're a murderer, so we're not going to be doing that. Can I get an amen? But if someone breaks in your house in the middle of the night, you are not going to pour them a glass of champagne. You're going to be loading up or grabbing a baseball bat or something and defending your family because we are called to do that. And we have that right. As human beings, God gives us that right. Now, those are the two instances. Every other instance 
It's not revenge when you are in war. It's not revenge when you're protecting your house. We need to make a clear distinction here. It's when someone does something to you and you're going to get them back. God says, no way. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. If you've read through the Old Testament even a little bit, and you see what God is capable of doing, there is no worry at all for any one of us whether or not God is going to bring bring about retribution, whether or not God is going to make things right. Because you and I could never do what God can do. Amen? And we're called not to try. For it is written. What is God? This is what God says. For it is written. This is what God says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay. Will eye for eye, tooth for tooth apply? You better believe it. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. The story doesn't end there. This should have never happened, ever. And it broke so many hearts. You know, these people were grieving because they had lost so many lives with bright futures, these five girls. They were grieving, heartbroken. And did these people pick up arms and go after this guy's family? No. And what did they do? What did they do? They prayed for his family. They contacted his wife and offered forgiveness for the sin of this man against their children, against their family, against their community. They blessed and did not curse. They lived out this passage in front of the entire world. I guarantee you there were no dry eyes when the news reports came out and these people got a hold of this man's wife and offered love and forgiveness and kindness. I'm not saying this is easy at all. Should this man have survived, he would have come to swift justice as he should have according to the Bible. And according to the Bible, yes, America gets its laws in large part, at least the principles of them from the Bible. There has to be a jury of his peers with two to three independent, credible lines of witness. And he would have stood trial. See, what we always do is we always want to get back because that's what we've been taught, even, as, even from children, that we're going to get back, get these people back. We're going we're gonna, to eye for eye, tooth for tooth. but we have to leave room for the wrath of God. I believe, and I pray that you do too, that this passage is true. That God will repay evil. That God will make things right. And even if we don't live and breathe to see it, God will have all these things worked out. God has instituted a system to carry out the eye-for-eye command. But that is not in our hands. It's in his. We're going to talk a little bit about that system next week. What does this not mean? In closing, what does this not mean? 
It does not mean that justice does not matter. I pray if you take away anything this morning, you take away the fact that God is just always and that justice does matter to God. It does not mean that we pursue ways to be persecuted. The Bible does not say, go look for people to persecute you so you can bless them. It says, when we find ourselves in the position of persecution, we are to bless those who are persecuting us. We're not to seek these things, though some people believe we are. It does not mean that we, as Christians, relinquish the right to protect ourselves and our families. It means we do seek justice how God has called us to. And that we need to understand how to do it in its biblical context in each and every situation. Each and every. And ultimately trust that every moment 